beyond the video. So, um, and as a side note, you know, Mike and I, we do want to continue doing a lot of the uh, the um, the tag team preaching where both of us are are talking. Um, we want to keep doing that fairly regularly, even as we get back. Uh, but it is it's nice to be able to give each other. Uh, a break a uh, week off here and there and especially as we're transitioning with technology it's it's nice to have mike running the tech and i can just focus on the message but we do want to incorporate that format um more so than we were doing before before covid um last week i got to watch as as mike brought us through the second of the six disputes that we're going to be talking about in malachi uh, the six different messages of indictment to the people of Israel and Judah. So the first one was an argument that God made with proof uh, that he does still love Israel and he always has loved Israel. And the second dispute called out the corrupt priests, uh, their worthless offerings they were making uh, and their failure to uphold God's reputation the way they were supposed to. And today we're going to look at that, the third dispute. And the third dispute begins in verse 10 of chapter 2. So if you want to follow along, that's where we'll, we'll be reading today. Malachi chapter 2, starting in verse 10. I have to give a fair warning to you guys. This is a pretty heavy message. Uh, kind of the whole book is pretty heavy. And by nature, when we get, in, we, we get into heavy topics when we're reading the prophets, kind of inevitably. Um, and it's probably why we talk about how a lot of us tend to avoid reading the prophets or studying them deeply, but that's really exactly why we need to read the prophets, because they, they do bring up heavy topics and they are meant to be convicting, and it doesn't always feel good, uh, but that's why it's important to read them. So let's go ahead and read Malachi chapter 2, starting in verse 10. Are we not all children of the same father? Are we not all created by the same God? Then why do we betray each other, violating the covenant of our ancestors? Judah has been unfaithful, and a detestable thing has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. The men of Judah have defiled Yahweh's beloved sanctuary by marrying women who worship idols. May Yahweh cut off from the nation of Israel every last man who has done this, and yet brings an offering to Yahweh of heaven's armies. Here is another thing you do. You cover Yahweh's altar with tears, weeping, and groaning because he pays no attention to your offerings and doesn't accept them with pleasure. You cry out, why doesn't Yahweh accept my worship? I'll tell you why. Because Yahweh witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young, but you have been unfaithful to her, though she remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows. Didn't Yahweh make you one with your wife in body and spirit? You are his. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart. Remain loyal to the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says Yahweh, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says Yahweh of heaven's armies. So guard your heart. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. So in this message, the attention has turned from the priests in the previous dispute now to the general public. The people, and in particular the men, are being called out for being unfaithful to their wives. 
And in doing so, they became unfaithful to God. So it's this twofold accusation. It's these two things that are kind of wrapped up into this one situation. And to, let's, to really comprehend what's going on, I, we need to take a, a closer look here. So verse 10 opens the dispute with, first, a reminder. Are we not all children of the same father? Do we not all have one ancestor is another way it's translated. And this message was specifically to the people of Israel, who they did, in fact, share a common ancestry from Abraham. They all descended from Abraham. But the follow-up question right after that indicates that their human ancestry wasn't really the point. It says, did not one God create us? So it's really their theological ancestry uh, that is the point here, and this, this language of, of God as the Father, it's invoking this image of God being the Father. Remember, remember the first chapter of Malachi started with God arguing that he does love them and that he has loved them as his chosen people. And this builds on that concept of him loving them as his children, as a good and perfect father. But they needed to be reminded about this, uh, even though it's just this fundamental truth that God created them and sustains them, and that without him, they wouldn't exist at all. And that he reminded them about that uh, with his example of Jacob back in the first chapter. And this also reflects a statement that was made way back in Deuteronomy, uh, in chapter 32, verses 5 and 6, it says, His people have acted corruptly toward him. This is their defect. They are not his children, but a devious and crooked generation. Is this how you repay Yahweh, you foolish and senseless people? Isn't he your father and creator? Didn't he make you and sustain you? So this verse 10 in Malachi is reminding them that God really is their father and their creator. And it specifically uses the wording that they were created by the one God. And that echoes their most fundamental creed that we've talked about, uh, the Shema, which again is back in, in Deuteronomy. And at the very beginning of the Shema, what they would recite every day in Deuteronomy 6, 4, it starts by saying, Listen, Israel, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one. And it was making this statement, a monotheist statement of Jewish theology. And this was something that set them apart from all the other nations and all the other people groups around them. Uh, and at the core of their covenantal um, relationship with, with God was this theological understanding that he was one God. And the very first of the ten big commands that were given through Moses was to not worship any other gods. So this was going to be the most basic expression of their covenant with God and of their love for God. And what comes next in the Shema is listen, uh, after listen, Israel, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one. The next verse is love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your strength. So the way verse 10 is opening up this dispute is an implication and an invocation of this Jewish theology and of their covenantal love relationship with God. It says, isn't this true? Don't you know this is true? Don't we all have one father? Hasn't one God created us? And then it follows up with, then why are we unfaithful to each other? Why have we been treacherous? Or why have we betrayed each other? 
profaning or violating the covenant of our ancestors. So how exactly has Israel and Judah violated the covenant? And verse 11 explains how. It says, Judah has been unfaithful, and a detestable thing has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. The men of Judah have defiled Yahweh's beloved sanctuary by marrying women who worship idols. Now remember, Malachi was written around the same time of the events in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So to get more of a picture of what was going on, we can actually read Nehemiah's firsthand account of this problem. We can find this in Nehemiah chapter 13, uh, verses 23 through 27 is what I'll be reading. And this is Nehemiah speaking uh, about what he's seen happening in Jerusalem and, and among the, the the Jews at the time. It says, about the, time, about the same time, I realized that some of the men of Judah had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Furthermore, half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or of some other people and could not speak the language of Judah at all. So I confronted them and called down curses on them. I beat some of them and pulled out their hair. I made them swear in the name of God that they would not let their children intermarry with the pagan people of the land. Was this exactly what led King Solomon of Israel into sin? I demanded. There was no king from any nation who could compare to him, and God loved him and made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by his foreign wives. How could you even think of committing this sinful deed and acting unfaithfully toward God by marrying foreign women? So Nehemiah saw this problem, and he was pretty passionate about it. He called down curses on them. He beat them. He pulled out their hair. So obviously this was a big deal to Nehemiah because he knew it was a big deal to God. And not only were these men just marrying women who led them to then worship these foreign gods and idols, they were divorcing their Jewish wives for no reason other than to go run off with these foreign wives. And they had previously entered into a covenant relationship with their wives, their first wives. And that's, that's what a marriage is. It's a covenant relationship. And that covenant marriage with their wives served as a mirror image of their covenant marriage, so to speak, with, with God. Because both are covenant love relationships. So they were simultaneously profaning or violating, depending on your translation, breaking two covenant relationships staining them by divorcing their wives and running off with women who then caused them to worship idols. So it was treacherous. It was tragic on multiple levels. Israel had totally lost sight of what it meant to be in a relationship with God and what it meant to be in a relationship with each other. Now, this message in Malachi is obviously directed at the men, uh, blaming the husbands, not the wives, for these divorces and, and the idolatry. But understanding the concepts of these covenant relationships and how they reflect each other is still a message that I think applies to all of us. But I do want to talk about marriage for a moment. And a lot of this message is going to focus on, on marriage because that's the focus of this passage. But I don't want to... Single, I don't want single people to kind of tune out the message just because of that. Because whether you are married or single, um, we're all called to be image bearers of God and imitations of Christ's love to all the people that God brings into our lives. So 
I think this message in Malachi, while it is, it's technically directed specifically to married men, it applies to anyone who has made a commitment to love God and to love others. And marriage is, is a beautiful expression of love, one of the most intimate and intense expressions of love. But Jesus also taught that a broader expression of love would point people to him. Like in John 13, uh, 34 and 35, it says, I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. You love, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. So this passage is focusing on marital unfaithfulness, uh, but it, it does apply to any breach of covenant agreements or broken promises. So in this case, they left their wives for other women and worshipped other gods. And again, marriage is the most intimate and intense human relationship. So that's why it's used to symbolize Israel's and our relationship with God. Uh, so let's, let's talk about marriage for, for a minute. The tradition of marriage, the institution of marriage, and the idea of it being a sacred institution goes back way farther than the Mosaic covenants or even the, the Abrahamic covenant. And it's the most ancient tradition, if you think about it, it's the most ancient tradition held by humans in the whole history of the world. Every culture on earth across every time period has always instituted marriage in some form. It might look a little bit different from one culture to the next, but it's always been a part of society in every culture. And it began with creation itself. <laughs> we go back to creation a lot because it's what, it's what started everything. So uh, Genesis 1, the first chapter, focuses on the fact that God made humans in his image and how they were created to represent him on earth, they were told to multiply and to fill the earth and to rule it on God's behalf. And then in Genesis 2, we're given some more details as to, first, the process by which God created the first man and the first woman, and then it focuses in on their relationship with each other. So after God created Adam, the first man, he knew that in order for him to fulfill his purpose as a human, he was going to need help to do that. He needed a woman to help him. Uh, and so he, uh, he would not be able to fulfill his role uh, in creation without that help. So God gave him Eve. So in verse 23 of Genesis 2, Adam meets Eve for the first time. He says, at last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, which to me is it's a weird sounding phrase. Uh, but he's basically saying that finally God has given me my soulmate my partner, she's the one who will allow humans to fulfill their role in creation. And it's a role that Adam couldn't have accomplished by himself. And then the next verse, verse 24, says this. It's a very important statement. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. So the story of Adam and Eve's creation and their union is part of the story of creation, how God created the world. That's what the story, the narrative of Genesis 1 and 2 is about creation. But this one verse, verse 24 of chapter 2, really stands out from the narrative because it's like this little piece of built-in commentary. It explains the whole point of what the last few verses were saying. So why were these few details of Adam and Eve's union included? in this story. And scripture, especially Old Testament narrative, is not often this convenient in that it just comes out and tells you the point of the story. 
what the takeaway is supposed to be. So we should really pay attention to this. And obviously a lot has happened um, now since the creation of the world, but the human origin story has a lasting significance that still applies today. And that's why we go back to it so often. And that's what verse 24 is telling us. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. So why is it? Because that's the model, the precedent that God set up the creator of the universe, when he breathed life into the first man and the first woman, the first human emissaries on earth. So from the very beginning of humanity itself, men and women have been coming together in this really fundamental, beautiful, sacred union, two becoming one. And to prove that Genesis 2.24 really is very important, and relevant. Even thousands of years later, you'll see that Jesus quoted uh, Genesis 2.24, and so did Paul in his epistles, some of the epistles to the early church. So one place you'll find it is Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul is talking about how husbands and wives should be treating each other. And he talks about how that relates to the example that Christ set for the church. So Ephesians 5.24 through 33 says, As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cared for the church. And we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and joins to his wife, and the two are united into one. So that's the quote, direct quote from Genesis 2, uh, 24. This is a great mystery, but it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So in this part of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, he's talking about marriage, and he's simultaneously talking about Christ and his love for his bride, the church. He's saying that wives must submit to and commit to and trust their husbands in the same way that Christians trust Jesus. But he's also saying that husbands need to, in turn, exemplify Christ in the way that they lead and love their wives. And how did Jesus lead and love? By serving in humility, selflessly, even to the point of sacrificing his own life for his beloved. Not because we deserve it, but because his love is totally unconditional. So that's what marriage is supposed to be, and that's what marriage is supposed to represent. And as a husband and wife grow closer together, they grow closer to God and learning how to love each other and and love God, they then point other people to him in the process. But the situation in Israel, as we can see from both Malachi and the passage we read in Nehemiah was quite the opposite of that. It was not what it was supposed to be. Ultimately, the accusation being made in Malachi, uh, chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, in this dispute, is that they, uh, it's an accusation of infidelity. 
and of unfaithfulness. It's betrayal, it's treachery. And the last sentence of verse 16, it's a very simple call to action. It just says, don't do it. Don't be faithless. Do not betray each other. Do not betray God. It's an easy thing to say. Don't do it. (laughs) But it's not so easy to live that out sometimes. Israel turned their backs on their wives because somebody new and exciting came along. So they just, they totally abandoned their first love and they went chasing after new women, new gods, exciting new adventures. But this sin, the unfaithfulness here, isn't just about the divorce. It says that God hates divorce, but really the underlying sin is that of adultery and idolatry. And those are the two actual commandments, the two of the big ten commandments that they were breaking was adultery and idolatry. And the life of one of the other prophets, Hosea, uh, demonstrates how painful, how heartbreaking marital infidelity is. And, and it demonstrates how painful and how heartbroken God feels when his people are unfaithful to him. And that's what the whole life of Hosea and the whole book of Hosea is about that. Idolatry is to one's relationship with God as adultery is to one's relationship with their spouse. They're parallel. And honestly, let's face it, we're in 2020, um, and we're no less prone as humans to this same sin than they, Israel was uh, in the Second Temple period when Malachi was, was written. It's tragically common, and it's not just in our culture. Uh, it, it is in the U.S. and in the westernized culture in general. We have pervasive promiscuity in the media. We have high rates of infidelity and of divorce, but, uh, and sometimes we tend to blame all of that on our culture. But there are some cultures in which adultery is, is actually even more normalized, as Mike experienced in, in Zambia. Uh, and, and reading the Bible just shows that this is a basic human tendency. It's a temptation very common to humankind. And it, does not, it doesn't even take physical action to become guilty of adultery. And some of you can probably guess what verse I'm, I'm going to read next, because Jesus talked about this in Matthew verse, uh, chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. Very famously, he said, You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say... Anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus, when he's teaching on the Ten Commandments, he makes this statement to just lay on the conviction and leaving no room really for excuses. And that certainly makes, you know, the the mind-boggling statistics that you can look up on, you know, pornography consumption and uh, and even addiction in our culture is it's very concerning. And the sobering reality is that destroying a marriage with infidelity can happen by sinning with your eyes and in your heart, and even without leaving your house. And, you know, sometimes it can seem impossible to avoid so pervasive it has become in our culture, which is when we, we have to remember the encouragement and the promise that's given in 1 Corinthians 10.13. It says, No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. 
And this applies to all temptations. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. That's a great verse to commit to memory. <laughs> and quoting scripture and praying to God is in itself one great way to start avoiding temptation. It's, I found it's hard to, to sin and, and pray and quote scripture at the same time. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's a great one to, to memorize. And it's a great reminder also in just that simple statement in verse 13 that God is faithful and he keeps his promises. We've seen that through Israel's story in the Old Testament and we know that in the coming of his promised Messiah, Jesus, he fulfilled his promises there and we know that we can trust God to fulfill all that he's promised to do. And I could quote a hundred verses, probably a hundred just from the book of Psalms on God's faithfulness. Um, but here's one uh, that I... I like that I found just from um, just one verse from Numbers, which is in the book of Numbers. If you remember, uh, this is where God is demonstrating that his covenant plan will always stay on track, even when his covenant people do not stay on track. They, they're sinning, they're complaining, they're rebelling. Uh, and God does promise consequences for some of that. But also he promises he will fulfill the promises that he made, the promise he made in the Garden of Eden, the promise that he made to Abraham and the promises he was making through Moses. So Numbers chapter 23, verse 19 says, God is not a man that he might lie, or a son of man that he might change his mind. Does he speak and not act, or promise and not fulfill? So, <laughs> it's making the point that God can do it because he's God. And he's not a human, and that's good news. Uh, he became, you know, part. He became human, but he's not only human. So that's that's an underlying understanding that's important to have uh, when reading Malachi and other prophets. In hindsight, we can see how God was still planning to send Jesus to fulfill the promise of a Messiah. While meanwhile, in Malachi's day, everything just seemed very bleak, hopeless. They felt abandoned by God. And today we have the promise of Jesus' return. And we can trust that God will fulfill his promise to restore, redeem earth and humanity to the form and the purpose to which we were originally created, to love God and to love each other perfectly in a glorious union with him. But now let's get back to Malachi and look at verses 11 and 12. It says, Judah has acted treacherously, and a detestable act has been done in Israel and Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned Yahweh's sanctuary, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May Yahweh cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, whoever he may be, even if he presents an offering to Yahweh of heaven's armies. They had profaned the sanctuary. And that word sanctuary, it can refer to the temple. Uh, but it can also refer to the people themselves were supposed to be a sanctuary for Yahweh. But they were offering sacrifices even in the midst of all of the sin that they were committing. And even then, in that period, which that's what they were supposed to do, was offer sacrifices. It was never just about the sacrifice itself. So this wasn't a call to just present more burnt offerings. It was a call 
to repentance. Because they could follow all the rituals perfectly, but if they weren't sacrificing out of a broken and contrite heart, it would be a pointless sacrifice. And David understood this when he wrote Psalm 51. Uh, And in Psalm 51, I read through the whole thing when we went through the, the story of David. This is when he was repenting of his sin. Uh, when he sinned in adultery with Bathsheba. And this happened, by the way, after the prophet Nathan had showed David his sin. And that's very similar to what Malachi is now doing as a prophet showing Israel their sin. And in David's case, the goal achieved the desired result, which was repentance. David repented. And in Psalm 51, uh, verses 16 through 19, he talks about this idea of sacrifice. He says, you do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. A sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So going through the motions of living a godly life and doing good things and service to God and, and the church while you meanwhile have ongoing or, or unrepentant sin in your life, that's worse than just not doing those things at all, not serving God. And on the other hand, when we do truly repent and offer a humbled heart to God, He does forgive us, and he accepts us. And that's what he wants to do. He wants to forgive and accept us. But of course, just like David experienced, there are often consequences and painful consequences for sin, earthly results of our actions and choices. But Jesus offered himself as the ultimate sacrifice for our sin so that we can be forgiven and restored to a relationship with God through Jesus. Again, there are a lot of verses saying this, but I'll just quote 1 John 1, 9. says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So with all the, the heaviness of this message, Jesus is the one who's willing to lift that burden if you just trust him to do so. So as we wrap up today, I would just encourage you all to invite the Holy Spirit to convict you of any sin. That's one of the primary functions of the Spirit is to convict. So whether it is lust or idolatry in some form, which we've talked about how, you know, we have modern forms of idolatry, uh, or it could be hatred or greed, if there's any sin that you have been blind to or become calloused to, because I really think the Israelites had just become calloused to their own sin. They, they had been doing it so much they didn't even see it as an issue anymore. Uh, or even if you're just ignoring the sin in your life, I promise that God can show it to you if you're willing to look. And when he does, if he does, confess and repent with a humble to God directly and to anyone in your life who you may have wronged or hurt through your sin. It's not fun (laughs) to to confess and to repent. It's not easy. It's not comfortable, but it gives life. It brings healing. 
And ultimately, it brings you reason to rejoice in the incredible love and mercy that God shows us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I just praise you for, for who you are. You are so holy and just. You're righteous and you're perfect. And you're so faithful. And you're powerful. And you're able to do everything that you have promised to do in this world that you've created. Now, we as humans, we fall short of your glory every day. And not only that, but we have actively have sinned against you and against each other. And we don't always live in the way that you want us to and have told us to. And yet you love us so much that while we were still sinners, you would send your only son to die for us so that we can have new life in you. Free from sin. Free from the shackles of death. So Lord, I just pray that you would send your spirit to convict us today of any sin in our lives so that we can repent and live unchained in the freedom that only you can give, that only comes through Christ Jesus. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.